This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Well, a really warm welcome to uh, this Thursday night, this very special Thursday night, as we have uh, Vimla Sara here um, uh, introducing uh, a meditation and then introducing the book uh, Eight Step Recovery, which he co-wrote with uh, a good friend of mine, Paramabandhu. And uh, for me, uh, the day has uh, had a particular positive edge to it, and that positive edge has been excitement. Um, it was... Uh, early afternoon when I started feeling something changing in me and I just put it down to uh, the coming evening and knowing that I'd be in the company of good friends and knowing that I'd be with Vimla Sara. Um, I, I have mentioned this to Vimla Sara just before the evening started. You know, when I think of Vimla Sara and I think of Paramabandhu, um, I, I, what comes to my mind is my first setting eyes on both of them. And with both of them, I found uh, Paramabandhu a very handsome man, and I found Vimla Sara a very beautiful woman. And uh, there was sort of like that natural, or for me anyway, attraction <laughs> uh, to, to them and, and their characters. And, uh, and that uh, sort of continues. And, and when I've introduced... Uh, this evening on, on other nights at the centre, uh, the quality I brought up or sense about Vimlasara is her sort of unstoppability, as I've, u- you know, I've used that term. Um, but in, in another way, m- maybe that's the wrong uh, term to use, unstoppability. I think <coughs> a sort of a, a, a gentle, a quiet, determined, uh, aware and kind attitude to seeing through her commitments. And, uh, and this book, though I haven't read it, I'm hearing news of it, that it, it, it is quite a special book. And that collaboration could not have happened, I suggest, without those qualities that I've mentioned uh, of Vimla Sara. And I know Paramabandhu too, and I think of his qualities of being patient, of being open, uh, of being... Uh, very clear in his communication. And there's another aspect to him uh, that I heard at the time when I lived with him in Sukhavati above the London Buddhist Centre, and that is that his life seemed to be quite a charmed life. There's been very few blips in his life. Things have just rolled on in a particular way. Uh, And and I hope that this book, the collaboration uh, with... uh, 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 between Paramabandhu and uh, Vimla Sara, you know, help see uh, both their lives move on and develop in a way that has a really positive influence uh, on the world. Uh, every journey starts with a small step, and we're here tonight to appreciate and, and maybe take on a small step ourselves through um, uh, Vimla Sara being here uh, on this special Thursday night, so I'll hand you over to Vimla Sara now for more of a little, de- some more detail. Okay, so 
So thank you. Um, I'll just say a few things before we, we go upstairs. I mean, it's absolutely delightful to see um, so many people here this evening. And to say that um, our um, busiest evening at Vancouver Centre is, is an evening I've pioneered called Recovery Mondays. And I have people from 12-step tradition to smart recovery, which is self-management man and recovery training, to people in um, other recovery groups coming along to the centre to um, just access the teachings um, of, of the Buddha. But um, I wanted to do a little bit of crowdsourcing, so I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but I have a, a, a few questions to ask you. The first question is, um, raise your hand if you're somebody who does not know anybody who's in recovery or anybody who's struggling with addiction or if you've never heard of anybody who's been struggling with addiction. Raise your hand. <laughs> So one person. There's always, there's always one person, that, that, and that, that's great. But for me, what it shows is, is that actually, you know, the, the theme of, of recovery and, and addiction is, is very much part of the fabric um, of, of our society. I have another question um, for you. Who here in this room has never experienced um, an uncomfortable negative mental state? Raise your hand. <laughs> okay. and who here in this room has never ever moved away from a negative mental state you know who's who's never ever moved away from feeling uncomfortable or horrid inside raise your hand yeah and so the reason why I ask this question is because I think it's really important for us to have that resonance and that connection with um, people in recovery and addiction because it's very easy for us to for us to say well that's them over there and that's not me because I'm not the person who's out there on the park bench you know but actually I would say that's the minority the people who are visible because actually it, it's 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 everywhere and there are many people who function but actually um, addiction is a real big um, part of people's lives and actually one of the reasons why um, people have addictions is because what I call is misguided self-compassion that actually basically when um, we are feeling uh, a negative mental state or something awful has happened we want to take care of ourselves we want to make ourselves feel better and so what we do is we reach for something to make ourselves feel better but then what actually happens, as we know, is momentarily it may give us a bit of peace, it may make us feel a bit better for a short while, but then what happens is once that goes, we want it again and we want it again and we get into this cycle of, of addiction. And so in a way, um, for me, it's really important to see that as misguided compassion because I think sometimes... Um, people who who are in recovery feel like I don't know how to be kind to myself and actually I'd say yes you do but it's just being misguided okay and um, I mean another thing I wanted to ask you who here has never experienced not liking themselves and that's that's another thing one person okay so that's another thing that actually uh, people in, in recovery experience is is 
that whole thing of not liking themselves, of, of self-hatred, which arises and, and, you know, trying to actually take care of that mental state. And as we know, um, at the root of any addiction is craving, and that's where the intersection between um, Buddhism and addiction meets. And I'm going to say a bit more about that after. But what we're going to do is we're going to do a practice called the four basic needs of the heart. And we're going to cultivate these needs. And it's not a practice that I developed. In fact, what I say is none of these teachings are what I developed. The, you know, a lot of the teachings that both Paramabandhu and I share are the teachings of Shakyamuni, of, of the Buddha. And we're just the, the vessel to actually um, impart those teachings uh, out into the world. And this practice, actually, I heard it from Deepak Chopra. He's not the one who... Um, who developed this, I can't find out where it came from, but I was listening to Deepak Chopra on one of those 21-day meditation challenges, and he speaks about these four basic needs of the heart, which is attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance. And he says it's really important for us um, to receive attention from other people and to get that affection from other people and that appreciation and acceptance and as I was listening to him I thought you know Deepak I know you're Deepak Chopra but no I think you've got it wrong there actually it's important we give that to ourselves you know what I've learned is is that the more I can pay attention to myself the more affection I can give to myself the more I can appreciate myself and accept myself I don't hunger from it from people out there because I've created a, a, a stock for myself that I'm not needy, I'm not waiting to be approved by others because I've cultivated a, a much healthier self-esteem. So in a way, it's, it's, for me, it's the groundwork of, of metta, of loving kindness, the practice of loving kindness. So that's what we're going to do. And this is one of the practices that we introduce in the book. Um, both Paramabandhu and I very much believe him being a psychiatrist who works for the National Health Service and specialises in addiction, and me with my own recovery process and working in the field of addiction, know that one thing people need is kindness. It's to learn how to be kind to, to oneself, really. And actually, you know, where is that connection between those of us who don't think we have addictions to people who do um, identify with having <clears throat> addictions is that sobriety of mind. I mean, those of you who have seen my, my TEDx talk will, will know, I say, I think one of the, the, my biggest addiction is my stinking thinking. <laughs> you know, that thinking which beats me up, which puts me down, which gives me all those negative judgments and just how, you know, often... Somebody would be talking to me and I can be listening to my thinking and be really addicted to that. And actually, you know, we do, we do laugh about it. But actually, you know, I don't think people are really aware that actually one of the top five causes of road accidents is distracted driving. And that distracted driving is from stinking thinking. You know, it's from that anger, it's being completely distracted. And I guarantee if we could test for it like we could alcohol, I don't know how many people would be allowed to drive on the roads, actually. Maybe it would become a safer place. So, in a way, 
if you don't see yourself as somebody who's you know who's got drug or alcohol or sex porn or gambling or internet or shopping those kind of things i'm sure you can relate to to the thinking you know and actually you know i would say that thinking thinking also can be a matter of life and death it causes life and death in fact stinking thinking causes murder okay it causes rape it causes sexual abuse so you know on on that that note you know it's it's so important to really uh develop a a loving um kind relationship with ourselves because the relationship we have with ourselves will have with the rest of our world you know that I'll finish with um there's this saying which I'm sure you grew up with and I grew up with it which said if you can't love yourself you can't love others and i one day i thought you know what that's not exactly true because i don't you know at once upon a time i didn't love myself but i i still did love others but actually how i loved them was through my negative loving of myself so if you don't love yourself you'll love others through that negative loving and actually if you don't love yourself people will see that and will treat you the same way that you treat yourself so if you want to be treated well one has to treat yourself well you know so this is the practice we're going to do so we'll go upstairs we'll sit um we will um have a tea break when you there's 15 books so i don't know who are going to be the 15 lucky people 11 i brought 5 so the 16 books <laughs> who's going to be the lucky 16 to get a signature <laughs> and then we will um well we we will have a talk and also to say that we will be doing the <coughs> refuges and precepts and so for those of you actually who perhaps are are new um we we will do them in call and response if you want to join in please do join in if you feel like i don't want to join in that's completely okay we're not um subscribing you to a cult but just to say actually the reason why we're going to do them is because it's one of the the teachings that we we talk about in in the book and I'll say more about that about the ethical practice and actually it will be different for those people who um are familiar with the triratna community because I I do them slightly differently I do them in the way that I think we could do them in El Sangre which would actually have a I think quite an impact so we'll go upstairs I've said enough now thank you <laughs> thank you it's um quite funny actually because uh Param Paramabandu is a is a doctor and specialized in as a psychiatrist and we I can't remember where we were but he says oh I've written a half an hour talk and I'm like okay great you can do the talk and I do the meditation I'm the artist so I haven't written a talk and it's like oh no I'm missing Paramabandu because he had he he has a talk or prepared so I've got these scraps of uh, of of paper so um So yeah, I just wanted to um first say how we came about to um do the book. 
I'd say what was really interesting um, for me, I was um, teaching the Four Reminders a, a, a couple of years ago, maybe two, three years ago, and was reflecting on the precious birth. You know, when you're teaching or when I'm teaching, I feel like if I ask people to reflect on it, then I need to be reflecting on it too. And what came up for me was, you know, well, why is my birth precious? You know, I'd never really asked myself that, you know, why is my birth precious? And I, and I really wanted to know. And so I thought, well, if my birth is precious, why do I want to live? And every answer I had for that question was ego-based. So I thought, okay, let me flip it over and think, well, if my birth is precious, why don't I want to die? And still, um, the answers were ego-based. So I just let it go and just let it ruminate. And then about six months later, it was like, oh, my God, what I have to offer is my recovery. And that was really quite scary because, you know, I'm somebody who had worked as a journalist and worked in the performance world, had, had written books, and it's like, I have my recovery to offer, you know, and, and in acknowledging that, it meant that there would be a shift in my, in my work, and, and what did that mean, and it felt quite scary, but I knew that I needed to, to face that, and so it was interesting that as that happened, an email from Windhorse had come to me, they'd written to their author saying, do you have a book that you want to write? And so it was like, well, OK, well, maybe a book on recovery. And so in a way, for me, that that's basically how the, the book came about, because, you know, I was somebody um, when I came to the Sangha, I was um, 27, 28. I had a chronic eating disorder. I was bulimic anorectic. I gave myself respite by taking cocaine. Um, you know, I was functioning, I was writing books, I was working as a journalist, but I was very, you know, I was un unhappy. In fact, I came to um, to the Dharma because um, I realised that I was destroying holes in my brain and I, I wanted to create new brain cells, you know. <laughs> I, I'd thought about learning a new language, but I came upon um, the Dharma. And, you know... When I started meditating, it was the first time that I experienced any sense of abstinence around my bulimia. And I, I don't know those of you um, who aren't familiar with bulimia. It's it's the disease where you where you eat and then you just purge. And the hell of the hell of that addiction of not being able to hold on to what you eat it's 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 a chronic um disease but there i would go on retreat and i would experience abstinence and i would experience some kind of sobriety of mind and um and when i came across the the four noble truths it just made sense to me i i just I, I, I experienced suffering, so I knew that life was suffering. And, you know, when it told me, you know, that there was a path that led to more suffering, I realised I was on that path. But the funny thing was, though, I couldn't understand why the third truth was that there was an end to suffering. I thought, why wasn't that the last one? You know, why, why wasn't it that there was a path to take us away from suffering, the third? But I think if it had been that way around, I would never have gone on that path. The fact that it gave me that hope that there was an end to suffering 
which allowed me to step onto that path. So, you know, I'm somebody, I'd say, who, who cleaned up in the meditation rooms, okay? There are people, if, if you're familiar with the 12-step the culture, people say I cleaned up in the rooms. I cleaned up in the meditation rooms. I did come to 12 steps much later in my recovery when I had a lot of abstinence and sobriety behind me and I went into those rooms because I moved to Canada. I didn't know anybody and I knew that actually I would be at risk of my bulimia, not the stuff with cocaine and that kind of stuff, but with bulimia I knew that actually I needed some kind of support and there was no Sangha where I was, you know, so I had to get on a plane to be with Sangha and my partner was a long-term 12-stepper, so I I went into the rooms and and that was great and, and that's been good, but I cleaned up through the Dharma, through the teachings of the Dharma, and I wanted to share that. I wanted to, to give something back and share that. Um, Paramabandhu has a completely different journey. Um, he's somebody who will say that, you know, he's not had any addictions, although we do say everybody has some kind of addiction, but he's somebody, you know, who, you know, um, who hasn't experienced um, addiction. Um, you know, he um, trained as a doctor, had had a much easier start in life than what I did, um, a much more privileged um, life. And but you know, he came across Buddhist, Buddhism and meditation, and just was very curious about the mind. And in a way, that was one of the reasons why he went into psychiatry because. It was a model for him to discover the workings of the mind. And, um, you know, when he got involved with Buddhism and and working and specialising in addiction, he became um, very aware that actually mindfulness could actually have, uh, be of benefit to people with addictions. And him and another order member wrote a paper about 25 years ago on mindfulness and addiction and then just left it, you know, nothing happened. And then 10 years ago, we begin to see, um, you know, mindfulness growing, you know, people like Mark Williams, um, Kabat-Zinn, you know, Ian Marlett, all these, you know, all these uh, teachers talking about mindfulness and mindfulness and uh, stress reduction, mindfulness and depression. And uh, Paramabandhu actually became really aware that actually, well, you know, if you can use mindfulness for depression, you can actually use mindfulness for addiction. And so he actually was responsible for developing the breathing space at the London (coughs) Buddhist Centre, which for me is so inspiring because, you know, as we know, our Sangha out in India does a lot of engaged Buddhism. Mm. But here in England, we do very little engaged Buddhism. And I actually see the work of people like Paramabandhu and Vidyamala Birch are the people who are actually pioneering engaged Buddhism within our Sangha. And the breathing space is almost like another centre. There's a shrine room dedicated to it, you know, a lounge area dedicated to it. And basically, you know, in that space, there's mindfulness, Um, based relapse prevention, mindfulness for depression, mindfulness for stress. And we get people walking in through those doors who would never normally come to a Buddhist centre. And it's really great. I mean, it's just really um, changed the, 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 
well, the, the, the population of people who frequent the Buddhist centre. Center. And, you know, a good majority don't necessarily cross over into the Buddhist centre, but some do. So he's actually been working um, very much in this field of mindfulness and addiction. And what actually happened was is, is that when I spoke to Priyananda about this book, and I said, this is what I wanted to do. And I said, actually, one of my readers would be Paramabandhu because I had worked with him on his mindfulness-based relapse prevention. In fact, I went along to see what he was doing to be nosy. And, uh, and then I said, I've been doing that for years. I do that in my work as a trainer in conflict re resolution because it's all a cognitive-based therapy. You know, actually, what the irony is, is that I was teaching non-self stuff, but didn't even know about it. You know, and, and, you know, it's really interesting. You know, we've been doing it for years. I mean, I laugh with people like Amra Gita, who's another trainer, saying, we were doing this stuff years ago. But actually, you know, we obviously understood it on a, on a, on a different level, you know. So... Um, <coughs> When Priyananda, he's very gr good, Priyananda is, he, he, he's great at guiding people because he just gently said, have you thought about co-writing with Paramabandhu? And I thought, that's a really good idea. Because to co-write with somebody, you have to write with somebody who's very generous. And Paramabandhu is very generous. When I spoke about the course he was doing and I said, oh, I know that, he said, go off and deliver it. You know, just go off and deliver it. And, you know, some people were like, oh, this is mine. I don't want you to do it. But he was very generous. And I just thought, yeah. And you know what? I, I really do believe that if I'd written the book on my own, the book would be nowhere near as good as what it is. And if he had written the book on his own, it would be nowhere near as good as what it is. And, and it's great because actually what I say to him is I say, you know, there are people who are going to read the book through me, the person who has had the addictions, and people who will read the book through you, the person who hasn't had addictions. And that's really important. And so um, we set about working on the book. And, and it's been a, a complete... Uh, work of co-writing in fact one of our readers once said oh i can tell the bits vimla sara has written because of the the poetry and in fact paramabandhu is more the poetic person the writer than me actually so it was kind of very interesting but actually it's been very much a co-writing we were we wrote each chapter together but i won't go into the process of how that worked now so what i wanted to say is because um some people uh talk about why eight steps in fact some of my friends have said oh is that the is that the short fast track way to recovery <laughs> <laughs> and um in a paramabandhu's work who works for the nhs uh, some people have said to him oh have you forgotten the four steps you know what's what's happened to the other four steps because as we know in the field of recovery what's dominated is 12 steps which is which has saved many people's lives and helped many people's families. But the reality is, it hasn't worked for everybody, like everything. You know, he, um, Paramabandhu, comes across people who have felt doomed because 12 steps hasn't worked for them, so what is going to work for them? And so, you know, we wanted to write a book for, for those people. Um, and so, you know, I will be upfront that we do say that this book can be an alternative 
to 12 steps. But we also do say that this book can be the 11th step, having a closer relationship to meditation and prayer, if you're familiar with the 12 steps. So um, we, why did we name it Eight Steps? Gosh, you know, naming books um, is always really difficult, and we were forced to uh, name it quite early on. I like to name a book at the end, you know, because titles change. But um, I suppose the figure eight came from the Noble Eightfold Path because originally we were thinking that we would try and fit it into that model, but it just wasn't working. We tried and tried and it wasn't working. And so we, we threw it out and actually said, you know, let's actually really kind of explore what we're doing. And um, the intellectual uh, Paramabandhu is, I, I wasn't aware of this, but actually... Apparently, the, the Dharma Pada, Pada means steps, the epistemology of the word Pada is steps, so steps of the Dharma or verses of the Dharma. And the other thing is, I know for me, I, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, we have these elaborate rupas, but, you know, rupas are quite modern. You know, rup, it wasn't always rupas, you know, um, sometimes when I create a shrine, I have a begging bowl. And actually, if I'm working with people... Um, with addictions within the Buddhist context, I will have a begging bowl to symbolize renunciation. But also we have the footsteps. You know, there were two steps which, which symbolized the Buddha. So in a way, you know, um, steps was really quite appropriate for, for the book. You know, and as, as we know, there are many lists in Buddhism. So you have to forgive us because now we have created another list for you to learn. <laughs> okay. So... Um, what are the steps? Yes. And um, so what are these steps? So step one is um, accepting that this human life will bring about suffering. Step two is seeing how we can create extra suffering in our life. Step three is embracing impermanence to show us that our suffering can end. Step four is being willing to step onto the path of recovery and discover freedom. Step five is transforming our speech, actions and livelihood. Step six is placing positive values at the centre of our lives. Step seven is making every effort to stay on the path of recovery. And step eight, which I do need to look at because I want to get it word for word correct, is, uh, can I understand my handwriting? That's why I commit stuff to memory because I'm not great at reading my um, handwriting. <laughs> so um, step eight is yes, Helping others by sharing the benefits we have gained. Okay, so those are the eight steps. And I'm going to um, unpack them a bit. So, um, well, as, as you can see, there, there is uh, the hint of, of, of the Four Noble Truths. And we do use a lot of the, the Buddhist teachings um, in, in the book. So with step one, we do explore suffering. You know, we look at psychological suffering. We look at physiolog physiological suffering. We look at existential suffering. And just really, um, 
in a way, what we're saying is, is that actually it's, it's really important to recognize that there will be suffering, you know, because basically um, what people are doing with addictions or with compulsive behaviors is moving away from the suffering. They're not in or we're not in acceptance of the suffering. And so therefore it's important to to accept that there, that there is suffering and that is okay and that we are going to suffer okay so step two what we're doing is you know just seeing how we can create extra suffering in our lives we look at the two dark teaching of you know of saying yes that there is going to be suffering if you have a car accident or even if somebody dies you know yes there is suffering but then that there's that second art where we proliferate or what we call propantia where we just go into that mental proliferation that mental thinking that just makes it doubly trebly quadruply worse okay and so that's what we're looking at to recognize how we can just make things just so much harder for ourselves and in that step we're actually looking at that you know Thoughts aren't facts, you know, that they, they're not facts and that, you know, how we can begin to let go of identifying with thoughts. The uh, third step is um, we, yes, um, with the third step where we're embracing impermanence to see how our suffering can end. You know, I mean... It's, it's one of the lakshanas, you know, it's everything changes. And often for people in recovery, people think things aren't, can't change. They get stuck, you know, can get stuck. Nothing's going to change. And in a way, if we can bring uh, people to become aware that things can change, there can be hope, because if there's change, there's hope. If you don't think things can change, then there's no hope. And it's going to be very difficult to get off that cycle of recovery. So in a way, in those first three steps, we're covering the three lakshanas. We do it a bit more. We go deeper into them. But actually, you know, we're looking at um, impermanence. We're looking at dukkha, suffering. And we're looking at non-self stuff, anatta. Okay? So those are the first three steps. And then when we... Um, move into the fourth step that's the step where you know being willing to step onto the path of recovery and discover freedom in a way it's being willing to cultivate kindness so in this step we talk about the teachings of loving kindness and we you know we look at different ways we have the four basic needs of the heart we have metta and we actually introduce the avalokiteshvara mantra because as we know, um, for some people, they have very busy minds and to get people to, to just sit and meditate is going to be very difficult. And so I know for myself, I used the Avalokiteshvara Mantra very much when I first came along to the centres. And I would chant that mantra and it was very strong, you know, the, the mantra for compassion. So in that step, you know, we're hoping that in a way, beginning to create a vision. So, you know, underpinning all the steps is this vision and transformation. Okay, so um, step five, 
Um, with step five, we're transforming our speech, actions and livelihood. So this is the step that we, you know, we really, uh, well, we don't make any concessions. What I say in this book is that we're putting the Buddhism back into mindfulness, what we're doing, is because there are so many mindfulness things, um, Paramabandha calls it mindfulness alphabet. But the, the thing is, is that I believe mindfulness isn't enough for recovery. And that actually, we do need to begin to look at some of those teachings. And so in that step, we introduce the traditional five precepts. And we introduce a practice around them. We introduce the practice of confession. And it was really interesting writing that. We had Vishwapani, who's a Buddhist scholar, and uh, he, he was great because it was like, you know, well, you know, is that going to put people off? How are you going to do that? But, you know, and we had to make it work because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the practice of confession was really important. And we're not talking about Catholic confession. But as we know, you know, even in, in the 12th step, the fourth step, the fourth step is making a moral and fearless inventory of oneself. And so in this step, we're also making a moral and inventory fearless. Um, we're making a moral and, moral and fearless inventory of ourselves in this step by, you know, looking at the precepts, by <coughs> confessing to somebody our unskillful actions, by making a plan. <coughs> You know, um, I grew up on that saying, promises are made to be broken. You know, and I used to love saying that when I was young. Promises are made to be broken. And I realize now why, promise, why that saying came about, or this is my story around it, is that promises were broken because there wasn't the plan. You know, if any of you have had to live with anybody in recovery, and somebody who's still using the amount of promises they would tell you, I'm going to stop. I re this time I'm going to stop. I really will. You know, I, I've seen the impact of, of what I've done. I'll never do it again. And five minutes later, they're doing it. And why are they doing it? Because no plan has been made. OK, there needs to be a plan. What are you going to do? So we talk about that in this step. In step six. We, um, that's placing positive values at the centre of our lives. And it's really interesting because, you know, I, I, I um, work a lot with people in recovery and, and, and when people come to the Buddhist centre and, you know, I have 12-step people coming and they perhaps ask me, you know, you know, what's the intersection of Buddhism and 12 steps? You know, what is your higher power? You know, when you turn your life over to a God of understanding, what, what does that mean? And I say, well, as a Buddhist, when I turn my life over to a God of my understanding, I'm turning my life over to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. You know, mm. when I think of higher power, the precepts have been higher power. You know, we, we chanted the negatives um, in English, and we don't do that traditionally at Triratna centers. And before I even asked for ordination as a Mitra, I can remember um, kind of doing my, uh, I'd become a Mitra and doing my preceptors, my, doing my um, precepts and thinking one day, oh, these, they're so lovely and romantic, these positive ones. <laughs> but what about the negative ones? How about I say those? 
oh god i should have regretted it because from the moment i started to say those daily things changed in my life i didn't experience things in the same way i didn't experience taking coke in the same way you know i didn't ex you know it's just, just just things change i say that was higher power working um in my life loving kindness is another thing that you know practicing loving kindness was higher power that worked in my life surrendering to loving kindness so in this step step six placing positive values at the center of our lives we talk about as buddhists what we do but actually this book is for everybody and we say you know this is what we do but look in your life and see what you can place at the center of your life and if you're christian that may be god that you choose to to put at the center of your life and that's okay you know but you know, if you're somebody who um, is living with an addiction, if you think about what is at the centre of your life, guarantee your addiction will be the thing that is at the centre of your life. And if you don't know what is at the centre of your life, take a moment to think, think what you spend your time thinking about mainly. What enters your thoughts mainly? What do you find yourself thinking about? You know, and people with addictions will make their decisions around that, around their disease. And so it's very important to bring positive values at the center of our lives. So we we talk about that and really unpack that. OK, so um, number seven, making every effort to stay <coughs> on the path of recovery. You know, you have people who say, you know, I'm a chronic relapser. Um, there's a quote by, I think, is it Mark Twain, who, who says, um, stopping smoking is easy. I've stopped a million times. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's really that thing of making effort to stay on a path of recovery because, you know, it's so easy to find an excuse to move away um, from what we're feeling. And so, you know, this, 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 this is uh, what well, all the steps are very important. But some of the things we, we, we discuss is, is looking at the traditional hindrances, you know, the obstacles of the mind, you know, the things that will throw us off the path of recovery. So really becoming aware of craving, you know, becoming aware of ill will becoming aware of restlessness and anxiety, aware of sloth and torpor, and of course what underpins them all, doubt, you know, be aware of when doubt begins to creep in and undermine um, your path of recovery. We also look at the teachings of the four efforts, so, you know, preventing unskillful states of mind, um, eradicating unskillful states of mind, cultivating skillful states of mind maintaining skillful states of mind so those are some of the things that we explore in in that step and then step eight where we you know we make that pact to help others to share you know the benefits of our recovery and as we know in our tradition we we do transference of merit you know um so, you know, I love it. In, in the 12-step tradition, it's said that um, if you're a sponsor, your sponsee keeps you clean. 
you know mm. so it's important you, you your sponsee you know is is part of your recovery program you know and and it's really important it's 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 important that we help others you know it's part of that bodhisattva vow and as we know part of the disease of of people with addictions with extreme addictions is isolation it's being isolated and so in a way it's that way of reaching out in into the world and we talk about the uh, five spiritual faculty faculties of really developing um, that practice of the five spiritual faculties and so you know in all of that as we say we have mantras in in in, in um, step five where we're transforming our, our speech mind and livelihood we introduce the practice of Vajrasattva uh, we introduce short meditations so that's the the kind of the nuts and bolts of of the book how the book can be used you know is, is, is a big is a big question how the book can be used and you know our our hope is is that centers will use the book centers will actually perhaps take the book on and start having a dropping evening for people in recovery I wouldn't call it eight steps because, you know, in a way that will exclude people. I think the thing of just calling it recovery, whatever. I mean, we call it recovery Mondays. And so it's great. We get anybody who identifies with being in recovery. We get people who come with depression and anxiety issues to codependency, to people with um, porn addiction, to gambling addiction, to alcohol, to drugs, to food. We get the whole gamut. The one thing that we do say and we put on on our website is is that you must be abstinent when you when you come. Obviously, I don't say sobriety of mind because you know I mean it's very hard as we know for all of us to have sobriety of mind. But we do request that you're abstinent when you come, that you're not using when you attend. So that's one way of using it, of going through the book um, at a regular drop-in evening. Um, we there will be people who who aren't Buddhists who would take the book and and create meetup groups and use it. You know um, who is the book for? Well, as one of our endorsers said, it's it, you know if you read it, it's it's almost for for everybody really. So you know it's for people who are in recovery, but for people who are perhaps connected with somebody who's in recovery or people who work in the field of recovery I mean one of the things we do actually say is is that actually you know there are there are people who work in the recovery world who have got addictions you know and we do you know we we don't make any cons concessions we name it and talk about that you know and, and actually look at that and and um, explore that and also, you know, one of the things we, we also do say in this book, it, it, it's like every time you're reaching for that distraction, you are choosing your recovery. You're choosing the addiction over your recovery. Every time you reach for that distraction. And that can be hard for people to hear because I do want to stop, I do want to stop, I do want to stop. But every time that person reaches for that distraction, they're choosing the distraction over their recovery in that moment. And these are the kind of things that we're really exploring. Of course, we've got some, um, definitely some cognitive-based therapy stuff in it because those models are great. When I use them in the training room, I, I, I train teachers, I train professionals in, in workplaces, 
around conflict and that kind of stuff and, and I put these models of the vicious cycle on the floor or, or do different models and it's almost like the light bulb goes on you know because they begin to see the, the workings of the mind really so yeah that's the the book so um, I'm going to stop there so that there's time for some question and answer <coughs> What was that phrase you used about um, active um, uh, Buddhism? It was about uh, Engaged. doing positive stuff. Engaged, engaged Buddhism. Buddhism. Engaged Buddhism, yeah. And I really do see this as part of engaged Buddhism. In fact, moving to Vancouver um, when I um, pioneered the Recovery Mondays, some of the people who had been part of that Sangha for quite a while said, Finally, we're doing something that makes a difference. We're doing something. We're offering something into the community. Because there is some anxiety and fear about doing something like that at centres. People think, oh my God, you know, say people come along with mental health issues or, you know, oh, I don't think I can deal with it. And I say, people have always come along to centres with <coughs> mental health issues. <laughs> and people have always come along with addictions. You just haven't known about it. Yeah. Did you find resistance to that? There is, you know, there are, there, there, in Vancouver there was, there, yes, there definitely was resistance, even acknowledging that it was an evening and it was a sangha night, it was, there, there, was, there was some resistance, but, you know, they've had to get over it, <coughs> really. And actually, it is quite challenging, because, in a way, I'd say what's quite challenging is, is that, you know, if you do lead, you know, something like Recovery Mondays, it, it, it challenges your own relationship to, to, you know, those social things like alcohol or smoking dope or whatever. And as we know, you know, if it's, you know, if it's older members who, who, who are at the helm, you know, a lot of older members still socially drink and, you know, might have the odd joint or whatever. And it's kind of... It's quite challenging. It brings you up against your edge because you have to think about it. You know, you do. And I know that because I, I um, about 12 years ago, I started delivering the anger, manga, an, anger management program to women who had been sent to rehabilitation instead of going to prison. And they, the, the crimes were alcohol-fueled. And I can remember thinking, well, do I think it's possible to let go of alcohol? Alcohol wasn't my thing. I could take it or leave it. Yeah, I enjoy drinking, but it, you know, it, that wasn't my thing. But I thought, God, is it, is it really possible? Here I am trying to enable these women not to drink. But do I think it's really possible? And I thought, I better, I better see for myself. So I had an experiment and I tried for a year. And then it's like six months later, I can't remember, I had a drink or something, and I thought, oh, God, is that what I'm like on alcohol? I think I stopped, and I, and I haven't drank since. But it was because of doing that work, I felt like if I'm going to have integrity to that work, I need to know. And actually, at the end of the day, it's my fifth precept. It's a damn shame that it got lost in the ten. But, you know, it is a precept that we took um, as, as mitras. And, you know, as, as far as I mm -hmm. see it, that they're training principles to train the mind. And so, therefore, it's training me to let go of intoxicants, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, I might, if I'm still in relationship with them, yeah, but the outcome is, hopefully, that we will let go. 
so you know that that's where the resistance can come it, you know it can be it can be challenging you know and also as well it's important you know i think sometimes people say oh well is is it okay to be able to still you know drink you know if they've been an alcoholic no it isn't but they want to hear that to give them you know to let themselves off really but i've done a lot of talking some more questions what do you do on our recovery monday <laughs> what yeah um we do a check-in no matter how big it is just it could be a one word or two word check-in um it's two hours long we either do the refuges or precepts um or we chant a mantra so we explain the mantra the ummani padme padme hum is a really good one because each syllable means something so we tell them what what each syllable means and then you know you can think of that while you're chanting it so we we do that if there's a whole load of newcomers i might not do the refuges and precepts because that might be a bit kind of daunting on that first day but we do them most of the time and then we alternate with the the metta or the mindfulness one of those practices and then there's a topic that we will discuss you know um so it could be you know something to do with you know what does higher power mean to buddhists you know it you know but you know or sometimes we might do teachings like i've done the four reminders there and and exploring that now we we'll, we we'll, we'll look at the book and perhaps look look at stuff in the book and we always end with a sit even if it's one minute you know we all so that the sit we end with is is age which is something which is very much used in mindfulness which is just becoming aware of the body um on your thoughts and feelings and then aware of the breath on the upper lip and expanding the breath throughout your whole body and you can do that in 3 minutes or the four basic needs of the heart you can do in 4 minutes so we always end with that you know so that's basically the the framework you know in a way what i say is is that you know if you do it at buddhist centers you've got the teachings to hold you that's the model that's what holds you mm. it's to stick with the teachings mm. You were talking the summer of Himalaya about possibly training people to work with the book. Is that still a plan, or? Well, actually, what we're saying with the book, we feel like, like with any book, people can work through it. You know, and basically, you know, I just say that, you know, what's really important, you know, I find with facilitating the group that people have a voice. you know it's you know giving people a voice and just having those group skills but you know i think anybody can take this book i mean people are going to take the book and go home and work with it but we are doing training um which is in february february 8th 9th and 10th for people who want to deliver the mindfulness based addiction recovery which is a 6 to 8 week course giving people skills um giving people skills to help them with their recovery and so if people deliver that then it might be what next what next is then the book so we have that on offer on offer too so that training is happening at the London Buddhist Center and we um may well do it again or center might ask us to come up to do stuff so yeah i just wanted to ask about the 12 step program because the focus of the 12 step program is the higher power and handing it over and kind of releasing control this is 
uh, much more about awareness and looking inwards. How did you, you say that they're compatible, I'm just wondering how you reconcile that given there's a, quite a strong emphasis on something external to you sometimes in 12-step Well, I suppose, <laughs> you know, there are, there are some people who really struggle with just uh, the first step of just um, admitting that they're powerless. And actually, you know, I've heard people say, you know, some reasons why people relapse is because they haven't got that first step. It's back at that first step. And, you know, in a way, uh, we don't have higher power, but we do, you know, in, in, in Buddhism, it's not like we say higher power, but we talk about transference of merit and self-surrender. So one is surrendering. So, you know, one is surrendering to accepting that there is suffering. Hmm. You know, in a way, it's, it's, I know, and it's going to happen, people will compare the two, and, and I'm not sure it's helpful to compare the two. I think the 12 steps is brilliant. Um, you know, uh, it, it's great, and it's a spiritual program. And this, too, is a spiritual program. And in a way, we, 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 we're covering the same stuff, but from a different point, from a different place, we're covering the same stuff. And actually, I think that actually... People could work through these eight steps and then go to 12 steps and get it. Mm. Actually, that's what could actually happen. That people will actually get it. The light bulb will go on and think, oh, I get it. And we'll be able to take those 12 steps deeper. But it's most definitely not um, criticism on 12 steps at all. We're just adding to the canon. In fact, you know, we've moved into a times actually where there are <coughs> new recovery programs springing up all over. You know, we have smart recovery, which is bringing up um, self-management and recovery training. And once upon a time, the only recovery program was 12 steps. And I think it's exciting. I think, you know, it is exciting because quite honestly, you know, you, there are people who, who will say 12 steps is the only way. And I will say, well, if that's the only way. You're telling me then that actually people of colour don't have addictions and you know, it's it's mainly men who have addictions because when I go into those rooms, I'm rarely reflected, you know. So, you know, where are they? And of course, we've all got addictions, you know, of course, you know, and, you know, so those rooms are, are really, really important. But there are... <coughs> many people who have found other ways you know now you know now i've come out you know i've never did identify about addictions now i've come out about addictions i have people who speak to me about it and people who have recovered through many different ways you know and we're just really adding to the canon and actually i think you know for me i'd say that i speak for myself that actually you know it's secular mindfulness is you know for me it's going a bit crazy I rang up a magazine um, asking if they would do something on our book, and they said, does it mention Buddhism? And I said, yes, and they said, well, we won't cover it. And mindfulness comes from those teachings, you know, something's, you know, something's gone wrong, you know. And I think, you know, on one level it's great because we do have mindfulness in the National Health Service because we wouldn't be able to get Buddhism in because if you start putting Buddhism in, then you have to have Christianity in and you have to have Hinduism in and, and you know, and there's that law that you can't be seen to be identifying with a religion. But we wanted to say, you know, okay, let's, let's 
look at this. Yes, there is mindfulness, but actually let's look at the Buddhist teachings. And what's really fantastic is, is that some of our endorsers have just have called it mindfulness because they realize this is mindfulness. We're giving you the whole package of mindfulness. Mm. To what extent do you encourage people to develop a grateful attitude, mindfulness of gratitude? This will really turn people around from inward thinking, concern with self, what do I need, my addiction, my problem, to outward thinking, to radiating, becoming generous, becoming aware, connecting with the world, abandoning isolation. Do you use that That's in the eighth in, in, in the eighth yes. step we do. I mean gratitude is, is 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 definitely very important. And we talk about, you know, first of all that fourth sight, what you know, you can be that fourth sight for somebody. Mm. You know, and yes, we do talk about going out, helping others, having gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not gonna work for everybody. You know, right. that's the thing. It will work for some people, but it's not gonna work for everybody. Um, not yet, because the book has just gone onto the streets, so it will be interesting. I mean, what's really great is is that he works in the National Health Service, so it will be interesting to see for him what impact that will have, because his name's on the book, and you know, I'm sure it will. <coughs> trickle around but not yet we we haven't yeah and also to say just ending i suppose really ending you know on that theme of um of buddhism and actually i was going to write something actually um read something that uh you know, craving, I mean, craving is at the, the root of, um, of, of, the, of the teachings. You know, we play that game of sensation swinging from craving to ill will, craving to ill will. And, um, you know, the, uh, it's believed that this is the Buddha's first discourse to his disciples. And we do actually, we're quite provocative. We say that the, the Buddha was in recovery, you know. So you have to buy the book to see why we, we say it, you know. <laughs> so his first discourse is, there is addiction to indulgence of sense pleasure, which is low, coarse, the way of ordinary people, unworthy and, unprofit and unprofitable. And there is addiction to self-mortification, which is painful, unworthy and unprofitable. Avoiding both these extremes, the, the Tathagata, the perfect one, has realized the middle path. It gives vision, gives knowledge and leads to calm, to insight, to enlightenment and to nirvana. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 